You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ancestral Elements Podcast, episode 15, Male Fertility. This episode, I really want to take a deep dive into things that can support male fecundity, not only through nutrition, but lifestyle factors as well because those two things go very much hand in hand. And as we've kind of wrapped up the nutrigenetic study that we've been on, this is going to be kind of a cumulative overview of all of that that we've already looked at, because really this is the end result of why you want to be healthy, not only as an individual, but as a species. If you don't have the ability to pass on your genes in the next population, that means there is a break in the health of the species. If you don't have the ability to reproduce, then you don't really have health. And so this is a really good biomarker to see if you have good health. And before we get going, I just want to put out that there is a ton of controversy around this topic of male fertility and infertility. There are a, there's a lot of back and forth in the scientific community of the reasons why males become infertile. And so I want you to know that going in. I'm going to do my best to kind of break things down in a very, very practical manner. And I will definitely link in the show notes studies that support everything that I'm talking about, but know that there's quite a bit of controversy about all this, and it's not that widely studied. It's becoming more and more studied because the rates keep getting higher and higher. Um, And so until... I guess there's more funding and more research really put into it. We may not have solid answers, but um, I'm going to do my best to kind of lay out my case in the way I see it. Um, And I'm going to give you practical tips if you are dealing with some fertility issues as a male, then I want you to have really solid practical tips you can go to. And I'll give you all the reasons behind that as well. And last week, we talked about PCOS and female infertility, and this will be a good kind of flip side of the coin episode on male infertility, because it is roughly the same statistics for male infertility as it is for female infertility. So about 40 to 50% of all infertility cases between couples is male male-driven infertility. And so I want to start off by just kind of breaking down the reasons, the general reasons why males have infertility, and then we can take a deeper look at what can be done to correct that. Okay, so generally when fertility is looked at in males, you're looking at two very over kind of arching things for that diagnosis, which is sperm concentration in the semen and motility of that sperm. So basically, if you don't have high enough numbers of sperm in the semen, then they're not going to be able to make it through the vaginal canal to implant themselves. Likewise, if you don't have good enough motility, so if the sperm aren't mobile enough to make it, excuse me, then it doesn't matter how concentrated 
and how many sperm you have, if they can't move properly, then you're going to have fertility issues. So those are the two kind of overarching things that are run for diagnostic purposes. Now, there's thousands of things that can affect both of those things, but that's generally where people start. And we're going to get into kind of what affects those two things. But generally, that's what you're looking at when you are kind of doing diagnostic work for to see how fertile or infertile you are. So I like to think of it in kind of three categories. You have your nutritional component, you have a emotional or stress component, and then you have a hormonal component. And if any of those are not synced up and balanced, then it's going to affect reproductive organs and fecundity and your own fecundity. So it becomes very important that you kind of factor in all three things when looking at it if you're dealing with a low sperm count or motility issues. So let's start off with talking about nutrition. If And let's start with just kind of the obvious stuff first. If you are obese, then generally you're going to have a lower sperm count. Now that's, I'm painting with very broad brush strokes right now, but generally if you're dealing with being massively overweight or your borderline diabetes or of hypertension or some type of heart disease, it's going to affect your sperm count and it's going to affect the compounds in the sperm that give them the robustness needed. Now, obviously, we've all known obese people that have had kids. It's not like it's impossible to get pregnant or pass on your genetics if you're obese. The issue becomes what kind of genetics are you passing on? right? And that's kind of what we've talked about with this whole podcast really is what kind of stuff do you really want to be passing down? So always a a good idea and a good place to start is just managing your weight. If you're overweight, then do your best to get in as good of shape as you can before you have kids, because that's going to clear up a whole lot of kind of predisposed issues that could be potentially passed down. So that would be step number one if you're dealing with that. Other nutrition factors, you're looking at vitamin and mineral deficiencies. So if you start looking into this stuff, you'll read a ton of articles that mention zinc as a very popular uh, driver for fertility issues. If you are low in zinc, then it's going to affect the sperm count and motility. When you ejaculate, you do release a lot of zinc in that sperm. There's quite a bit of zinc that ends up being uh, depleted out of your body. Um, So that's an important thing to factor in as well. You need to keep that zinc up in the body. And you can do that through food or diet or supplementation if you choose to. We've talked a little bit about zinc and ionophores being an important kind of cofactor in that process. The best way to really get that is through curcumin or turmeric. Um, If you're eating a lot of turmeric, then that zinc is going to be very easily absorbed into the cell membrane. And if you're not, it's going to be a little more difficult. You're still going to be getting it in, but um, it's nice to kind of double those up. You have this kind of synergenic effect of them coupling together very nicely and getting into the cell. And a lot of zinc supplements will have turmeric in them or curcumin in them or quercetin. So sometimes that step is taken care of 
if you look for those types of supplements. So that would be a suggestion. And your uh, other heavy metals, if they're out of whack a little bit, they will absolutely affect your sperm. Manganese is really important, as is magnesium to keep up. You, again, those are trace minerals, at least manganese. And so you don't want a ton of manganese because it will adversely affect your sperm count. It Same thing with like lead or copper. You will, um, if those are too high, then it will affect the sperm. So you just want to really make sure that those are all within range um, because it could be something as easy as that. You could just be either severely under mineralized or in some cases over mineralized and it's just dropping that sperm count. So if you're dealing with a low sperm count, I would absolutely check your minerals. The reproductive organs are highly, highly tuned into the rest of your body and the rest of the systems. And if something isn't right in any other area of the body, the reproductive organs will pick up on that. They are extremely sensitive to kind of adverse reactions. And so this is why it's such a good identifier of health. Selenium is also a very important trace mineral for reproductive health and keeping things regulated. That also plays on sperm motility and the way it moves. And so there's basically a chain reaction that can happen. And as we talked about in the metal episode weeks back, these trace minerals play on each other and it can start kind of a domino effect of issues and of unhealth. So it's important to keep in check anyway. So it's a nice thing to check periodically just to make sure you're kind of hitting all those and are in range. And I'll go over foods later on in this episode, foods that are good to get these types of minerals in your body. But I just kind of want to lay out some of the just overarching factors that will affect reproductive health in men. Okay, so let's jump into stress and kind of emotional stress that can affect the reproductive system. I mean, if you are constantly stressed out and, you know, your adrenals are constantly just pumping out adrenaline through your body, you know, even if it's a low trickle, which it's in this day and age, is that's pretty much the response that we get the majority of the time, then your body is going to have to kind of fight to keep things regulated, not only on a vitamin and mineral level, but on a hormonal level. So the more you can do to limit large amounts of stress or get into a very relaxed state often, it will have dramatic effect on reproductive health. Things like cryotherapy and sauna have both been proven to affect sperm count. Um, there used to be a thing to where if, you know, you got too hot or if the testicles got too hot, then they would thought that it would lower sperm count and it could damage the sperm, which isn't really true. I mean, it might be true for like, you know, that particular moment, but it bounces back very, very quickly because you're producing thousands of sperm a second, basically. Um, so it's not a big deal. You have a ton of turnover, constant turnover. So high heat, you don't really have to worry about. I mean, you know, it's not a big issue. You know, that's the beauty of dealing with a system that is so sensitive to internal environmental change and external environmental change, is that if you stop doing the negative things and just pile on positive attributes to it, then it balances out really quickly. It's such a sensitive system that you can make changes very, very rapidly. 
But the other side of the coin is that if you're dealing with a bunch of negative ramifications constantly, then things will shift pretty quickly to a very negative outlook. The study of mitochondria health when it comes to reproductive organs is one that is extremely important and yet very new. I've mentioned a lot about mitochondria in past episodes, and it rings extremely true here that the healthier and more efficient that your mitochondria are, the better reproductive success you're going to have. Period. It's that simple. If you have bad mitochondrial health and bad cellular respiration and bad redox, then the chances of you having good reproductive health is very, very low. Mitochondria, if they're not pumping out efficient ATP, then the cells are going to be compromised. And again, with such a sensitive reproductive system and how finely tuned it is, that has to be dialed in very, very perfectly. And if it isn't, then you're going to start a whole big mess of cellular cascade that interrupts hormone production and response, not only to the testicles, but through the brain as well, and through all the supporting organs that help sperm neogenesis or creation of new sperm and recycling of old sperm. Since your body's creating so much so quickly, again, about 1,500 per second, there is a lot of turnover. If that mitochondria isn't really, really well established and working at a very high level, then you're going to have some issues. And I don't want to make it sound like it's going to be completely detrimental because that's most likely not going to be the case. But it may be suboptimal, meaning that you could still get pregnant and have kids and all of that, right? But could it be better? Could it be more optimal? And I think the answer is yes. You know, this isn't extremely black and white. It gets pretty gray and muddy. But I think the better you can get things, the better the potential outcome is going to be. So managing that ACTH response or that adrenal corticoid thyroid response becomes important. And you should absolutely factor it in. And whatever way you do that, whatever your outlet is for stress reduction, do it. Because you've probably at this point trained your nervous system to relax with that particular stimulus that you're putting into it. Meaning if running is your outlet that you use to de-stress or lifting weights or running a bath or sitting in a sauna, do those things because your nervous system is tuned to respond to those things much more rapidly. Not to say that you can't change it, but if you're looking to really ramp up production quickly and just integrate it into your life, just keep doing those stress reduction techniques you're doing. It could be yoga, it could be meditating, whatever. Um, and they're all beneficial. Your nervous system needs to be in a relaxed state. It needs to be in a parasympathetic state. Otherwise, you're going to have pretty suboptimal conditions. Okay, so moving on to hormones. This gets to be a little complicated and extremely important. As we age, testosterone naturally starts to dip a little bit. It wanes. That's why you see people in their 50s and 60s oftentimes taking exogenous testosterone, whether it's in creams or whatever. Um, it's a natural occurrence. Testosterone will dip a little bit. And it can cause everything from mood changes to mental faculties being a bit compromised. 
it's an extremely important hormone, especially when it comes to testicular health and proper formation of sperm. If those testosterone levels have plummeted a bit and you're trying to conceive, you're going to have a rough time. It's a very, very crucial hormone. And in this day and age, with a lot of what's called xenoestrogens, which are estrogen-like compounds that you see in a lot of industrial products like plastics, for example, um, actually turn themselves into estrogen and it will lower your body's ability to create testosterone. So a lot of times in males, you get this kind of overdriven estrogen response. Um, and they're not true estrogens that you're taking in, but they will flip into estrogens in your body once you get them in. Um, and it, a lot of times that's why testosterone wanes so heavily in people so rapidly. And there's other factors too, like exercise and you know, not keeping lean muscle mass on your body, all of that will affect testosterone uh, production. But xenoestrogens are an interesting one to keep in mind. So like BPA that got outlawed in plastic, that was because of xenoestrogens. But there's also a derivative of BPA that's still being used that will eventually flip its way into xenoestrogens. And it's called BPS or bisphenol S. They also have a BPF. So any of these derivatives are essentially just swapping out very, very basic compounds. So they're not actually that much better. And there's a lot of articles on this, and I'll link to some of those to show health studies. When I was in chemistry back in college, I had a chemistry professor who did some chemistry work for a bottled water company. And he actually was saying that it's advised that you let plastic water bottles sit out for two years before you put water in them so they can finish off-gassing and you're not leaching those harsh chemicals into the water. And that's kind of the issue with it too. So plastics are a big one. Um, there's other non-nutritive food additives that tend to create an estrogen response in the body. And sometimes that's why you'll see grown men that look like they are teenagers that don't have a lot of facial hair and they have mm, childlike features. In evolutionary terms, that's called neoteny. And the textbook definition for neoteny is a species likelihood to carry childlike characteristics into adulthood. Essentially, what that means is your hormone production is very skewed in an unhealthy way. Because if you're not aging properly and you're not looking like you're an adult, when you're a fully formed adult, there's a hormone issue. And in men, that oftentimes means that testosterone is way out of balance. And you can see it on people. Um, and it's not good. I mean, people, you know, always want to look like they're, you know, younger than they are. But there gets to be a point where it becomes unhealthy because you have unbalanced hormones. And that's not an okay thing. Not if you want to procreate with robust health. Some other hormones that are really important for reproductive health are DHEA, which is a form of testosterone, luteinizing hormone, which is a signaling hormone that goes from the pituitary gland down to the testicles, follicle-stimulating hormone, which starts that process of sperm neogenesis or sperm creation, fractalkin, which is what would be classified simply as a protein, but it's a chemokine, meaning that it is 
essentially a signaling pathway for a bunch of different amino acids. You find it in the brain, you find it in the spinal cord, and coincidentally you find it in the sperm. And so what happens when fractalkin is high in the sperm? It actually increases inflammation. And you see that in other areas where fractalkin is high. If it's high in the brain, it'll increase neuroinflammation. If it's high in the spinal cord, it will increase cerebral spinal fluid inflammation or inflammation of the spine. And it's no different in the sperm. So this is something that's relatively new and still being studied, but it's an important thing to keep in mind with inflammation because if that rises, if that fertalcan ends up being elevated in the sperm, it decreases the sperm's motility. You have some disrupted movement, just like you would kind of expect, right? It's a very, very important thing to note. So managing inflammation becomes crucial, and that could be anywhere through the central nervous system, especially, again, back to the nervous system and making sure you're regulating the nervous system, the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord, making sure you're getting that into a relaxed state becomes very important. And this can be now proven clinically. I mean, you wouldn't really want to create babies and life in an extremely hostile environment, right? You would imagine that those babies being born in war zones would probably have some pretty built-in PTSD through the body and through the brain, right? Growing up in a hostile environment, it's not easy. So it stands to reason that if you're relaxed and healthy, then your outcomes for passing on genes are going to be far, far better than if you're in a hostile, stressed state trying to procreate. And then vitamin D obviously is extremely important. And again, vitamin D is a hormone. It is not a vitamin. It's extremely important. And in a lot of the cases where men had lower or suboptimal sperm counts, vitamin D was at play, at least to an extent, usually a large extent. So keeping those vitamin D levels up becomes very crucial. That being said, that ties in with mitochondria that we were talking about earlier, light becomes very important to get on the testicles. If you think about it, we don't get light on the testicles very often in this culture unless you're suntanning naked or something. You know, most places in North America, there aren't that many nude beaches, and most guys aren't walking around getting sun on the testicles, which you should be. There's vitamin D receptors there. Uh... Again, don't worry about the heat because that's going to be just a kind of blip on the radar. And you're far better off increasing that mitochondrial response in the testicles than you are not. And that this is just a theory, but it's probably why heat is affecting testicles in men because the mitochondria are weak. They're not seeing any light, any actual sunlight. And so the mitochondria are already compromised, right? So you add heat to that mix. And if you have damaged mitochondria in the testicles and in the scrotum, you're going to have issues. But if that mitochondria is robust and used to seeing daylight and sun, then that's going to change fundamentally the way the cells divide and expel waste products like we talked about in cellular redox with mitochondria. It's no different in the scrotum or the testicles. 
So it becomes very, very important. And there can a lot of times be oxygenation issues too. So oxygen not being supplied to the testicles or blood flow in particular becomes an issue. There can be some physical issues to that, right? Erectile dysfunction comes to mind when you just don't have good blood flow. Again, having any type of underlying heart disease or heart conditions that are going to limit blood flow or, you know, something like atherosclerosis or, you know, any type of hardening of the arteries, right? Atherosclerosis is a big factor. Um, and all of that will affect sperm motility and sperm count. So really, again, like with anything, it becomes far more nuanced and far more complicated than just trying to increase sperm count through some supplementation or something. It doesn't really work like that. Not well anyway. So approaching this thing from all angles is really your best route. So whether you're getting some infrared light through a light panel on the testicles or getting out and getting sun on the testicles midday, something like that, right? It's going to enhance the mitochondria and it's going to enhance the production of sperm, which are all very important factors in managing healthy sperm counts and motility. Another side note about a really stressful environment, and this is why I went kind of into stress and managing stress a bit, because if your stress is super, super high, then that fractalkin that we talked about, that protein mechanism pathway, that raises. You see it a lot of times with um, TBI, traumatic brain injury, where fractalkin will rise and it will cut off the luteinizing hormone to the testicles. So your sex drive just completely dies, basically, with brain injury. But that's also been proven with non-brain injury as well. So just a chronic stress state will cut off that signaling pathway of luteinizing hormone to the testicles. It just demolishes your sex drive. And you see that a ton with people, men and women, um, because it's the same response. And I briefly alluded to that in the PCOS episode I did with Katie Walchek. And it's uh, an important factor to, again, keep in mind, to really manage that stress, to manage your nervous system. Uh, because it will cause inflammation and it will mess with your sexual drive and hormones and ultimately sperm count and motility. So it's not, if you need a takeaway from this episode, that's your takeaway, probably above all. That would be the best place to start. If you're under high amounts of stress and you're not getting pregnant and you know it's kind of on you, start there. Seriously, start there, man, because that's um, that's the best thing to do before you start really jumping into a lot of supplementation or even a lot of diet tweaks. Manage that stress. I've seen this time and time again, year after year, with people that I've worked on doing body work. If you can get their stress down a little bit and get them tapped into the nervous system, all of a sudden, the reproductive issues where they can't get pregnant, a lot of times they subside and they can get pregnant, you know? Um, so it's not just about nutrition. Again, <laughs> it's never been just about nutrition, right? Yeah, I can't really speak about that piece enough because it is very important. And that's really kind of what that whole PCOS episode was about. I mean, you heard Katie talk about her experience with acupuncture and it was essentially it's stress mitigation, stress mitigation, and then getting blood flow to reproductive organs because it gets cut off. And that's really 
kind of your multiple pronged approach is limit your stress so you can get good blood flow, good oxygenation to supply the cells and the mitochondria for good quality cellular turnover and production of energy. That's what you're after. And that's typically why there starts to be become issues of infertility. It's because those things are way, way out of whack. You know, I don't want to oversimplify it because it's more complicated than that. But if, again, if we're generalizing and painting with big, broad brushstrokes, that's kind of the, that's where things fall, you know, and settle. It's typically good blood flow, good nutrients to the reproductive organs, and things will start to change. I mean, if you think about it, if it was just hormonal, then... IVF treatments would be almost 100% effective, but they're not. You're lucky if they're 40% effective. You know what I mean? So this, again, just isn't hormonal component. It's playing on essentially every single system and every single input into that system. So let's segue into diet. And I want to lay out kind of a plan to prepare your body to kind of procreate or to get the most optimal conditions before you have kids. All right, so I would start from about a year before you want to have kids. Again, in the PCOS episode, we kind of talked a little bit about how you need to prepare your body for pregnancy and women. Men need to do the same thing. And they do call it zero trimester, but in most cases, you're going to need a hell of a lot more than three months. Um, I would go 12 months, at least, personally. And that's what I'm going to do personally. When Marie and I decide to have kids, it'll be a solid 12 months of dialing everything in and being pretty strict about it. Um, And our plans are going to differ drastically. I mean, I'm going to create plans for both of us. Um, And I'll outline that at some point when I'm ready to do that. But um, as a general kind of all-purpose plan, I'll give you a breakdown here. So if this is something you're interested in, you can refer back to it. Okay, so yeah, start about 12 months out preparing your body. I would, if it was me, I would pack on as much muscle mass as possible. Again, because that's going to increase your testosterone response through your entire body. I would be getting out and getting good sunlight whenever I could. I'd be making sure I would be getting high minerality in my diet. You could do that through a variety of ways. You could do it through supplementation. You could do it through a little bit of sea salt minerals, or they even make minerals derived from seawater that you can just add into water. I like to throw in a little bit of sea salt with some lemon in the morning just to kind of remineralize things for the day a little bit. It doesn't have to be super salty, but just enough where you're getting a little bit of salt. And it has to be sea salt. Don't use like iodized salt. Use real sea salt. I'd be making sure I was getting ample amounts of vitamin D, probably about 6,000 IUs a day. In the summertime, you could back off of supplementation a little bit because if you're outside getting full sun exposure, especially in the testicles, you're going to be doing a little bit better on your vitamin D. So you could pull that back supplementation-wise. A good food to increase really good neurotransmitters and cholesterol or things like DHA and EPA. And DHA and DHEA are very different molecules. DHA has to do with neurotransmitters and it being a bit of an anti-inflammatory mechanism due to the omega-3 properties it has. I would go with oysters. Oysters are going to be a really, really good, not only mineral-rich food, but high-cholesterol food that is going to increase the cholesterol's kind of getting into steroids. 
through the body that's going to build the tissue, which you need, especially if you're working out and putting on muscle mass. Lower stress, which we talked a lot about already. So whatever way you want to do that, if it's through body work or hot and cold therapies or a combination of kind of everything, that would be great. And that's what I'll be doing. I'll be doing a combination of all those. And mitochondrial kind of honing and making sure that I'm getting proper light. I have an infrared light panel, which I use regularly, and I'm also outside a lot. The more you can sync up your circadian rhythms in the natural cycles of the day, the more that mitochondria and those redox pathways are going to be opened up because you're going to be adapted to the light cycles, the natural light cycles. I would essentially kind of almost do a Mediterranean diet, except I would add in a lot more organ meat and I would add in more wild foods like venison. I'd add in wild plants, depending on the time of the year. You know, mushrooms, I like to forage greens I'll forage in the spring. So here in the Bay Area, spring's starting to come pretty rapidly. I just harvested a bunch of pine pollen, which is the highest testosterone plant really there is. And I made that into a tincture to increase my testosterone for the spring, which I've been doing for years anyway, but it's a very good androgenic compound to get in the diet if you're wanting to keep those testosterone levels up, especially if you are getting into your late 30s or you're in your 40s a great idea to do anyway. And pine pollen is something you can take a couple of times a day. So you have testosterone cycles that kind of peak and wane throughout the day. In the morning, when you wake up, you should have high testosterone. That's why if you wake up and your testosterone levels are good, you should be erect. If you're not, if you're never waking up with an erection, then you know testosterone probably isn't high enough. That's one just kind of quick little measure that you can do. Uh, you also get another peak around noon. So those are good optimal times to take pine pollen because the testosterone's already starting to spike a little bit and you can just add to it and it'll take things to kind of a higher state than you're naturally getting. That's always uh, what I tend to do. I usually take it once a day. I mean, I'm still in my early 30s, so things are um, functioning pretty good <laughs> if you're catching my drift. Uh, but if you're getting into your 40s and 50s, it's a good thing to take a couple times a day. Uh, it'll keep things stabilized. I also take elk antler extract and it's a russian extract method where they it's done in traditional chinese medicine too but they usually do it into a tea and the russian extraction method is done with an alcohol extraction so it's a little more robust you're pulling out a little more nutrients and compounds um and that has growth hormone in it and also increases testosterone so i supplement with that as well and i definitely will be on top of that when i'm preparing my body to procreate. They also found that omega-6 and omega-3 profile in sperm was greatly affected and compromised the overall fecundity. So in males with low omega-3, all had low sperm count motility issues. So if that omega-6 and omega-3 isn't roughly in a one-to-one -one ratio, you have inflammatory cytokines, you have Fertalkin, all those high inflammatory amino acids start to build in the tissues and it affects the sperm and it gets into the sperm and decreases motility. So 
keep high omega-3 ratio. A 1 to 1 ratio is perfect. Hard to get to, but the closer you can get to a 1 to 1 omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, the better. The group that had the highest omega-3s were the most fertile, so that is going to be very important. And that's why eating essentially a Mediterranean diet will give you high omega-3s. Um, it'll keep that in much, much better balance than eating a bunch of processed seed oils and things like that and processed foods with high PUFs, um, sorry, polyunsaturated fats, which are omega-6. Definitely important to keep in mind. And if you're worried about maybe getting too much cholesterol or too much LDL, in your diet. Remember that LDL isn't necessarily a problem unless it starts to oxidize. We talked about oxidation in the cellular redox episode, and LDL really only starts to become a problem if it's oxidized rapidly in the body, meaning you can have a lot of low-density lipoproteins circulating through the system, not oxidized, and they don't cause any deleterious effects. There's a study that shows that you can have up to 40% more LDL circulating in your body if it's not oxidized than you could if you had oxidized LDL in your body. And with oxidized LDL, it starts to form what's called cellular foam or biofilm, as it sometimes is called. Um, and that is what turns into plaque in your arteries. It's not cholesterol that build in the arteries like they thought. It's an oxidized version of it that creates a foamy, filmy substance that hardens in the arteries. That's a really, really important distinction, and I want you to really think about that because it's not the cholesterol that's the issue. It's the oxidation of that cholesterol that becomes the issue, and the slower you can oxidize it, the better, and the healthier you are metabolically, the slower that's going to become oxidized, and your body's going to be able to deal with those bio biofilms that build up in the tissues and in the arteries. And what oxidizes the LDL is the same thing that oxidizes anything else. So again, back to getting rid of cellular waste products and free radicals, that ROS system, that reduction and oxidation system becomes crucially important cellularly, and it will absolutely nutrigenetically affect the foods that you're taking in. So if you're metabolically healthy, meaning you have good muscle mass and you're in a healthy weight and you're eating excess cholesterol, not a problem. That being said, if you're overweight and you have metabolic unhealth, and you're leaning towards obesity, or you're extremely overweight, and you're eating a bunch of excess cholesterol, that's oxidizing, especially if your omega-3 and omega-6 ratio is way out of whack, because then you have high inflammation, and things will oxidize even quicker. Does that make sense? So as for me and my plan, I'm going to load up on higher cholesterol foods to keep things primed to have kids. If I was metabolically unhealthy, I would have to get metabolically healthy first in order to do that. And that's why I really recommend doing this a good year in advance, because if you're overweight, you're going to want to shed all that before you have kids, if you really want to prepare your body for the most optimum outcome. Again, you could have kids. It just depends what you want to do. 
do you want to pass down the best version of yourself? Or do you want to pass down kind of a suboptimal version? You could do it either way. I mean, it's done every day, both ways. For me, it's vitally important that I pass down the best possible version of me that I can, especially when it comes to my medical history and kind of whole life story. I mean, being born as early as I was, I want to make damn well sure my mitochondria, which my kids won't get any of my mitochondria, but there's other mechanisms in there that they will inherit. And I want to make sure all of that is in prime condition before I have kids. And so if you have to clear up a bunch of things, that's going to take time. Taking back your health takes time. And give yourself time if you need it. And it's a good thing to just develop good habits anyway. You know, again, if you can't prepare your body, you know, six, 12 months ahead of time to have kids, what are you going to do when you have kids? Right? That's going to be way easier than raising kids. I mean, if you don't even have the ability to prepare your body for pregnancy, you maybe shouldn't be thinking about pregnancy or preparing your body to have kids if you're male. You know what I mean? And it sounds a bit harsh, but it just depends what you want to pass down. So again, I would eat a lot of stuff kind of from the sea. I'd be eating a lot of shellfish. I'd be eating a lot of good omega-3 fatty acid foods like salmon, you know, a nice fatty white fish like cod or halibut. Anything like that is going to boost all of that. Organ meats, you could either supplement or you could eat them fresh, but you're going to be getting a lot of folic acid and a lot of choline and a lot of B vitamins from that, which support that mitochondrial function and cellular energy if you need a boost. Really important. And then sleep is another very, very important, important thing to think about. I talked a little bit about biofilms and the buildup of biofilms kind of plugging up arteries. That's been shown in uh, lack of sleep, too, where your brain, if you're not getting into a deep REM sleep and sleeping long enough hours, your brain doesn't clear those biofilms, and they start to build up. That's one of the main mechanisms in things like Alzheimer's or dementia. Those biofilms don't clear during the night. That's one thing the brain does. It starts to clear out and scrub out those biofilms if you get good enough sleep. And if you don't, then that stuff starts to build up, which is, again, a direct link with the pituitary gland and luteinizing hormone and a whole other cascade of hormones. Sleep is going to be crucial, crucially important for not only you, but for property development if you want to have kids. Uh, And it's going to keep everything regulated. I mean, you could be doing all of this stuff perfectly, but if you're only getting four hours of sleep a night, you're going to have a really hard time, and things aren't going to be... You're not going to be in a good spot, you know. Um, And the more stress you have during the day, the more you're going to have to sleep, you know. Some, I mean, if you're in a super, super high stress job or something, then, you know, you may need 10 hours of sleep to kind of reset all of that, you know, which isn't always that easy to do. So, definitely 
if you think of sleep as a nutrient, if you think of sleep just as important as anything you're putting into your body food-wise, it starts to paint a little bit clearer of a picture. Because that's a thing where people a lot of times will tend to sacrifice sleep to try to get more done during the day. And that can be a slippery slope because it will dramatically affect everything else. So as a general rule, if you're getting good sleep, good baseline nutrition, doing stress reduction, making sure that you're detoxing well through sweat and things like that, and keeping good muscle mass, more than likely you're going to be very reproductively healthy. If you're not and you're doing all those things, which can happen, there may be a little bit more of a predisposition kind of genetic or epigenetic component to it. And you may have to get some further testing to figure out what's going on. And then you can go from there. Generally, heavy metals have a really, really big impact on sperm production. And so if you're doing all those things and sperm count is still low, you may want to check for heavy metals. And that's an easy enough test to get ordered up. And a lot of times that is the answer. It could be you could be high in lead. It could be you could be high in copper. You could be high in some type of trace mineral that's kind of throwing things off. So that's an important thing to keep in mind that if you're kind of overloaded with heavy metals, then you'll want to get that checked out. So an optimal day when preparing for pregnancy for me would look something like this. I would wake up a little bit before sunrise. I would put on a 25-pound weight vest. I would go take a walk up hills for about a half a mile just to kind of get things flowing through the body, get some blood flowing, wake me up a little bit. I would have a morning smoothie, hopefully from some berries that I had foraged and froze, like blackberries. I would throw in some colostrum and liver powder and maybe some yogurt and nut butter, and I would mix all that up with a liquid base of chaga tea, because chaga tea has a higher antioxidant value than basically any other thing on the planet. It destroys acai berries, goji berries, blueberries, any of those that are considered to be really high antioxidant foods. It knocks them out of the park. So getting that regularly into the diet will help modulate that immune system. Then I would get a cup of coffee. I often eat bacon and eggs for breakfast. I tend to go with a higher protein, higher fat content breakfast because it'll carry me over and stabilize my blood sugar out through the day. It'll get me, you know, oftentimes till, you know, two o'clock before I really need to eat again. For lunch, a lot of times I do some fish. Sometimes I'll do some cod or something like that. Or a lot of times I'll do sardines with a little bit of sea salt and some lemon on there. Just something pretty light easy. For dinner, we eat a lot of seafood, so I'll do salmon or cod or prawns or oysters, something to that effect. Occasionally, we'll do a lean red meat like venison or bison. We usually pair that with some type of carbohydrate like potatoes or we love doing wild rice as well. We buy it from Wisconsin, where it's hand foraged by Native American tribes, and it's all parched and kind of ready to go. And that's going to provide a lot of good B vitamins and a lot of good iron and magnesium. And then 
usually some type of vegetable, asparagus, a salad, you know, whatever we feel like doing. So pretty simple stuff, right? Nothing too complicated. I try my best to get outside quite a bit during the day. It doesn't always happen because, you know, life happens, right? But I always try to get at least a couple hours a day outside. I'm also doing body work, so I'm still doing massage work, so I'm staying moving and active that way. But I definitely am doing more computer work now that I'm doing more and more nutrition consultations with people. Definitely starts to add up. So lately I've been doing a lot more weightlifting to just keep things built up in the body. You know, I went from doing about 35 hours of massage a week and now I'm down to about 15. So I basically, I cut it essentially in half or more some weeks. So I've definitely ramped up my activity level with some resistance work and some body weight work. Recently, I've really been into kettlebells and a lot of times I'll do a kettlebell workout with that 25 pound weight vest on. Um, it just makes it a little more challenging and I've just kind of gotten used to it. It's a nice thing that I like to do. Yeah. So, you know, again, throwing in some weightlifting stuff, keeping good lean muscle mass is really important because that's going to burn calories. Again, 10 times more efficient than fat will. So the leaner you're going to be, the more calories at rest you will burn. So if you can increase that, then metabolically things will speed up. And then my bedtime routine is I usually drink a cup of tea. Sometimes I'll get on I have a spinalator and a chi machine, which help just kind of get the spine worked out. Again, that's a management of the central nervous system. A lot of times I'll red light before bed and then I'm in bed and I get a good eight, nine hours of sleep a night. And by doing kind of by stacking these types of disciplines, it starts to regulate things. And you'll notice a difference and you don't have to do all these things. But I mean, you could substitute the red light panel with watching the sunset right? I mean, that's completely free. You just need a clear evening. And even if it's not clear, you're still going to get some infrared light through the clouds. Or better yet, sit around a bonfire and hang out with some people, drink some tea or some whiskey or whatever you want to do, right? I mean, community is very important with all this too. So yeah, you know, it's just about kind of, again, interacting with the natural environment around you and making the best of things. It's really nice on foraging days because I'm outside a lot longer. You know, I, if I'm spending time fishing or mushroom hunting, something like that, then it gets me outside walking and moving and I definitely get my workout for the day. So just very practical things, the way that humans have always done it. And it's not always super easy, right? I mean, especially right now, these are very unprecedented times. And if you already have kids, I mean, you're going to be maxed out right now, especially with kids being home from school. You know, there's a lot to take on. And that's why stress mitigation becomes even more important. You know, the more stress you have, the more you're going to have to let shit go. And if you don't, then that's when things really start to become an issue and things start to really pile up. You know, you may have to spend a good 45 minutes or an hour kind of winding down and sloughing off stress at night you know, and it's not always easy. I mean, again, no one's perfect, you know, no one gets this right all the time and is perfect. If they are, then they're lying because it's just not a thing. You can be very disciplined, which is a good thing. You're going to need some discipline through all this, you know, and the more you do it, the more 
habits are going to evolve and you don't have to do this stuff all at once. You know, you can incorporate one thing, you know, maybe it's sitting around a fire twice a week or watching the sunset, you know, three days a week, something like that. Keep it easy. Keep the steps small if you're just starting. That way you can just slowly build and add things. Maybe you need to identify a plant you can forage for the season and just focus on that single thing, whatever it is. Just the more you engage with the natural world around you, the more regulated your body's going to be. And that's kind of the bottom line through all this. Hormones start to fluctuate when we're way out of balance and we're not connected in with the light cycles and we're staying up until one o'clock in the morning scrolling Instagram or, you know, watching TV, whatever it is. And then you crash out because you've overloaded your body with blue light and it spiked your cortisol. And you're not going to really get into a deep sleep that way. It makes it really difficult to get into a deep REM sleep. So keeping good light cycles, keeping good baseline nutrition, right? Not eating a bunch of ultra processed foods with especially high sugar, because that's going to cause hormonal shifts and glucose spikes. If you're looking for a substitution for white sugar, I would seriously recommend looking at maple sugar. It's maple syrup that's cooked down into a sugar. That was how Native Americans in the Northeast would store their maple syrup, because maple syrup, if it's not refrigerated, will eventually mold. And so Native American populations in the Northeast would actually reduce it down to a granulated sugar. And it's a it's fantastic, actually. Uh, you can bake with it. It's sweeter than pure white sugar, actually. Um, it has kind of those molassesy compounds in it from being cooked down, which it's just really nice to work with, actually. Uh, but what maple syrup and maple sugar do is they don't spike your glucose and insulin as quickly as uh, white sugar does. It has compounds in there that actually stabilize your blood sugar, so it's a slower release. It's like a time release in your system. And honey does the same thing. So if you're gonna, if you're craving something sweet at night after dinner, then I would incorporate that into whatever. I like to make uh, chocolate truffles or kind of a whipped chocolate, almost like a frosting with butter and colostrum, cocoa powder, and a little bit of maple sugar or maple syrup. If I'm craving something sweet after dinner, at least it has some nutritional value rather than just reaching for, you know, store-bought cookies or something, right? It's a lot different. I would, anytime you're craving something sweet, I would lean towards maple syrup, maple sugar, or honey, because all of those things are a slower release of sugars into the bloodstream than sucrose. And it's rich. And so you're only going to want a little bit. That's the thing with super refined sweeteners like sucrose is your body can just take a lot of it because it's actually pretty mild until it gets into the system. So you're just going to want to keep eating and eating. But if you have some medicinal compounds in there and you have some caramelized sugars and things like that, it's rich. Your body's not going to be able to take as much in. And so if you can do that, then you're going to eat less. I mean, that's the thing with especially carbohydrates. It's so easy to overconsume. The trick is you can consume carbohydrates. Just don't gorge yourself on carbs. You can still do it. And you need carbs, especially if you're doing some type of high activity like weightlifting or hiking, something like that, you're going to need carbohydrate. If you don't, then 
you can become very gaunt and pretty unhealthy pretty rapidly. You can do it for a little while, but you're not going to be able to do that year after year and get away with it. Carbohydrates are fine. You just don't want to overconsume them, especially ultra-refined carbohydrates. So lean towards natural compounds that are produced in nature because they're going to be a lot more biologically adapted to your body than, you know, some ice cream you bought at the store. Why did I get into this tangent? Oh yeah, proper nutrition. Yeah, so just keep things in balance. Keep an 80-20 rule. You know, you don't have to be perfect, but keep it consistent. Keep it consistently good and things will balance out. Again, vitamin D is crucial for your hormone production. So keep good vitamin D levels. Again, good sun exposure, good sun exposure on the testicles, full body sun. Supplement with vitamin D if need be, especially if you're in northern latitudes where you're not getting a ton of sunlight through the year. You may need to keep that supplementation going a bit and that's going to start to regulate your mitochondria. So all of this works together and it should be smooth and you should be able to stack these disciplines a bit and not let things get away from you too badly. And remember, high omega-3, low omega-6. The more you can do that, the better things are going to function. That's, again, a very, very important thing, which is why with something like this in regulating men's hormone health, I would lean towards a Mediterranean diet where you're getting really, really good, rich sources of omega-3. It could be in seaweeds. I would stay away from a ton of omega-3 sources that are plant-based like flax because that has pretty high inflammatory omega-6 with it. And a lot of times it'll be high omega-3, but it's also super high in omega-6. And a lot of times it's not in a one-to-one ratio. So keeping that in mind, I would go towards animal foods or easy digestible plant foods like avocados or seaweeds for omega-3 fatty acids if it isn't an animal source. And I think that'll about do it. As I really do start to prepare my body to have kids. I will outline a very detailed plan for you guys in the future. And I'll do one for my wife too. We may do an episode together on that at some point if I can convince her to get on here with me. So I'll let you know. Um, And we may have to tweak things. But I think the more you can think about preparing your body beforehand, the better the outcome is going to be. Thanks again so much for listening to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. And I'll talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral elements podcast if you like what you're hearing please subscribe on itunes or spotify and leave me a rating and review this will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience thank you so much for listening and if you want to talk to me personally go to the ancestralelements.com community to get access to the forum we go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail and you can connect with other listeners 